let's say they plan to play a Beethoven uh, sonata. So they practice and they practice for years in order to be able to play well. And yet with happiness, somehow people think that if they decide to be happy, then they can just be happy like that without, uh, without planning and without uh, practice, without working hard. Now, happiness is a skill. Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by an absolute superstar in the fields of happiness, positive psychology, and peak performance, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. After graduating from Harvard with a PhD in organizational behavior, Tal went on to teach the most popular course in the history of Harvard University, write multiple groundbreaking books, and speak to thousands of people around the world on what it takes to bring happiness to life. So Tal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. It's great to be here. Now, one of the reasons I'm, I'm so excited to have you today is not just because of your amazing insights around what it takes to raise life to the next level, but also because both of us had a very similar journey to um, happiness in the sense that both of us used athletics, professional athletics, earlier on in our lives as almost a vehicle to achieve happiness. And so can you share a little bit about, with our listeners about your you know, former life as a professional squash player and how that translated into you then studying psychology and happiness? Yes, of course. So um, I started playing uh, squash at the age of uh, 11. But before that, I was uh, a committed athlete. I played tennis and I did um, uh, track and played uh, soccer. I loved sports of, and, and, st- and still do. However, um, I remember that throughout my career or, or as a professional and before that uh, training, I felt constant stress. And the stress was relieved only after tournaments were, were over and I happened to do well or after a very good training session. But in general, the stress was uh, ongoing. And uh, even though I loved the sports and it was very meaningful to me, um, I was not overall happy. Um, and I thought that I would be happy when I win the big championship. And for me, the big championship initially, at least, was winning the Israeli national championship, which is, I'm from Israel. Um, and on it, I was indeed very happy, but only for a few hours. So it was a short-lived relief. And I discovered going on later on in life, playing more professional squash, and then later on uh, um, accomplishing things uh, uh, professionally in, in, in education, that whenever I would succeed according to my expectations, uh, I would be happy, but it was only short-lived. And I realized that formula of success equals happiness, that formula doesn't work. And it was when I realized that, that I decided to study psychology because I wanted to figure out that formula. Yeah, I love it. I think this, this idea of um, hedonic adaptation is such a central one. And if, if you want to you know, really live a happy life. Because I see so many people out there, they're striving for these huge goals, basically slaving away every day of their lives, trying to at one point reach happiness. But the problem is it always moves ahead, right? You're never going to be totally satisfied when you're successful at athletics or in business or wherever else. So I think that's such an important point here. So for you in the beginning, studying psychology, was it, was it really like more of a personal thing? Like you just wanted to find out you know, what makes me happy? At the beginning when I started, it was 100% a personal thing. Yes. I, was, uh, I was in pain. 
I was uh, unhappy. I was, I was in pain. I was uh, unhappy and I wanted to figure out why. That was my primary motivation. Yeah, that's so interesting. So how did, you know, studying positivity and how did studying psychology actually impact your life? Like what were some of the most important lessons that maybe would also be interesting for, for our listeners here on, you know, how we can actually live a happy life? So the first thing that I, that I learned about was the reverse relationship between success and happiness. So while success does not lead to happiness, at least not to long-term happiness, um, happiness does lead to more success. So if I increase levels of well-being, if you're talking about a, a business, the profits actually go up when happiness go up. If you're talking about schools, grades go up. So it's not that happiness leads to success, but rather success leads to happiness. The question then remains, you know, how do we increase levels of happiness? And there are many answers. You know, one thing, for example, which is related to sports, is that physical activity is a very important component of a happy life. Physical exercise, uh, even just three times a week of, you know, 30, 40 minutes of aerobic exercise can go a long way. And meditation contributes to happiness. Relationships are the number one predictor of happiness. So quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us, not virtually, but really face-to-face, -face, these relationships contribute to happiness. And then perhaps first and foremost, the most important thing for a happy life is being open to embracing and accepting painful emotions because they're also part of life, of any life. Oh, I love that. It's such a good point. And, and I mean, the, the first three seem so almost obvious at this point, right? Like we all know we should be exercising, we should be meditating. But why the last point about embracing difficult emotions? How can people do that when they're in this slump and they're experiencing pain or suffering or you know, sadness, depression? How can people deal with those emotions and, and at the same time accept that that is part of life and part of happiness? You know, part of the reason why it's so hard for so many people to deal with difficulties and hardships is because of what they see around them. So, you know, we go on social media and we see everyone is smiling, everyone is happy, everyone is leading seemingly perfect life, except for us. Yeah. And then we feel inadequate and we feel frustrated. And um, we say, you know, what's wrong with us, we ask, not realizing that something would be wrong with us if we did not experience painful emotions at times. So the paradox here is that when we embrace these emotions as natural, we'll actually have less of them. We'll be able to overcome them. You see, the way embracing emotion works, it strengthens our psychological immune system. What does it mean to have a strong immune system? Having a strong immune system doesn't mean we don't get sick. It simply means we get sick less often, and when we do get sick, we recover more promptly. And it's the same with a psychological immune system, Ex accepting, embracing painful emotions, doing everything right in every way will not mean we do not experience painful emotions. It simply means we experience less of it. And when we experience it, we overcome it more promptly. So when we embrace our painful emotions, truly, genuinely embrace them, then we are in the best position to lead a happy life with all the ups and downs, of course, but an overall happy life. Oh, I love that so much. And it, it's interesting, you know, because usually when I tell people, I, you know, I, I study happiness, right? I study positive psychology. 
what they what they usually tell me is like, but I'm not supposed to be happy like 100% of the time, right? <laughs> I think that's that's such an important point is that like negative emotions are a valuable part of life. In fact, oftentimes they can teach us stuff, right? They can teach us lessons about life. And so trying to be happy 100% of the time is usually just some kind of recipe for, for actual failure and misery, right? Because we, like you say, we look at all these seemingly perfect lives out there and we look at ourselves and realize it's not it's not measuring up, right? But But just realizing that everyone is unhappy and everyone is sad at times, I think is, is so valuable. And also what is reminding me of is, as you mentioned before, um, in this, this inverse relationship between happiness and success, right? And what it reminded me of is, is this idea that the ultimate currency in life, as you mentioned before, is, is not money, but actually happiness. So what we're actually all striving for at the end of the day is not so much, you know, having a large bank account, but having large amounts of of happiness in our lives. And so how can people distinguish between you know, those means and those ends in their lives and really find more of the happiness they see? So, so the question we need to ask ourselves, and the sooner we do it, the better, because very often people ask themselves this question towards the end of their lives when uh, they have gone through uh, a lot. So the question we need to ask ourselves, and again, the sooner the better, is what's really important? What's really valuable? What are the things that are meaning are, are really meaningful to me in in my life? And if we ask this question, if we truly think about it, then, then we'll come up with uh, things such as you know friends and family, things such as um, work, but a particular kind of work. You know, so it could be athletics, sports. It could be you know to to start a business. It could be to um, Go and volunteer. It really doesn't matter what the answer is. The, the most important thing is that we think about the question. And the thing is, most people do not think about it enough, meaning they're on a treadmill, um, they are on autopilot, and they're just doing mostly what is expected to them uh, of what society deems important. Yes, for some people, it may be important to um, have a very successful business or to make a lot of money, um, which is great. Let them follow this dream. Uh, for many people, there are other dreams, um, and unfortunately, those many people very often don't pursue those dreams. So stopping and thinking, that is a key element uh, of, of a happy life. And after stopping to think, then going into action full steam ahead. Oh, I love that because I think there's this piece of clarity that, that people are usually missing, right? So when I, when I usually run workshops for companies, right, on, on happiness, usually the first thing I ask people is, who in here wants to be happy? And, and everyone hand goes up, right? Because everyone wants to be happy. And then I ask them, so who here has like a happiness plan or strategy? And people usually give me these, these blank stares, right? Because they're just like, what, what do you mean a happiness plan? But I think it's like in any area of our lives, usually if we want to get good at it, we get some kind of plan. So we want to run a marathon, we get a training plan. We want to you know, lose weight, we get a diet plan. But for whatever reason, when it comes to our happiness, people don't really use the same conceptualization. They don't approach it the same way. So why do you think it is that you know, people are more willing to plan their next vacation, but less willing to actually plan their own lives and, and really ask themselves those, those hard questions of what is actually going to make me happy? You know, one of the reasons is that, um, and, and, and I want to just add to what, to what you said, because it's not just about the plan. It's also about the execution of yes, the plan. So let's say someone says, I want to run a marathon. Um, yes, they plan on running a marathon and then they practice. You know, they train every day. They run, you know, uh, um, you know, 100 kilometers a week 
or uh, let's say they plan to play a um, Beethoven uh, uh, sonata. So they practice and they practice for years in order to be able to play well. And yet with happiness, somehow people think that if they decide to be happy, then they can just be happy like that without, uh, without planning and without um, uh, practice, without working hard. Now, happiness is a skill. Um, there are, um, in fact, there are neural pathways in the brain that are associated with playing a, 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 a musical piece, just like there are neural pathways in the brain associated with being, uh, leading a, a life of gratitude and appreciation and, and being overall happy. And the thing is, we have to train our mind. We have to train our hands when it comes to playing a piece of music or when it comes to happiness. So people have a misperception that happiness is just a decision. Okay, I decided to be happy and now I'll be happy. And yet the decision is important, just like it's important to decide to be a musician or to decide to be an athlete or a successful business person. So a decision is important. However, it's only a first step. And, and I'd like to add here, because it's not just perception. It's also, it also when, it, when it comes to relationships, people decide that they will live happily ever after. But that decision is not enough. You need to invest in your relationship, just like you need to invest at work or playing music or running a marathon. So it seems like when it comes to those psychological skills, people have a deep misunderstanding of what it takes to excel in those areas. Wow, I, I absolutely love that. This idea that psychological skills like happiness or having good relationships actually takes the same amount of work as going to a gym and, and trying to be strong and fit. And there's this great quote, uh, it's my favorite quote by Alexis Carell. He said, man cannot remake himself without suffering for he is both the marvel and the sculptor. And, and that's really what, what to me it gets at, right? It's like, if you're trying to change, it's going to require work. It's going to require some kind of short-term pain and you know, delaying immediate gratification when you go out for that run or when you eat that healthy food or when you sit down to meditate, right? It's not necessarily pleasurable in the moment, but afterwards and over the long term, we're going to experience a lot more happiness. So how can we sort of find the balance between the two, between suffering in the short term and, and find that long-term happiness that we see? Yeah, so, you know... Um... I'm not a fan of suffering. I don't think you know, we should look for suffering. However, unfortunately, sometimes uh, suffering finds us. Um, ideally, the way to a destination that we deem valuable and worthy. Let, let me give you a, a, a simple example from, um, well, a, a couple of examples. One from relationships. You know, so I've been um, you know, married for uh, almost 20 years. Wow. Um, my wife and I invest in the relationship. Yes, we have our we have our ups and downs, like every relationship does. It means to work hard. It means to uh, you know to go on dates together, to talk together, to spend time together. You know, yesterday we went biking together. Uh, it's to do things together. Now this means investing in the relationship. Now, is that suffering? Is biking with my wife suffering? Is spending time with <laughs> Hopefully her not. <laughs> of course not. It's pleasurable. It's it's enjoyable. And we're building, we're investing in the future together while we're doing it. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example. You know, I, I, I work very hard. You know, this morning uh, I spent uh, three hours uh, building a workshop for, uh, for teachers. Um, I've been, you know, I've been doing this for, for many, many years. Every day I work, 
um, and I invest in it. I'm, I'm preparing for a workshop in the future. I'm preparing for, a, you know, to, for more success, hopefully, in, in the future. At the same time, I also enjoy what I do overall. Not every moment of it. You know, there are times when I just want to, you know, watch, uh, watch TV or, or do nothing. But, but I, I tell myself that, yes, it's important to, to invest and to, and, to, and to work hard. So what, I, what I'm saying here is that success is a combination. It's a combination of difficult times and hopefully also of enjoyable times. And we must be prepared for both. Ideally, in a perfect world, we would be enjoying every, every minute um, of the way on the path to, uh, to, to a better future. Uh, but, you know, it's not perfect. And we have to also embrace um, the difficulties and hardships and failures so, so on. Um, so, it's, um, so, so it's not just suffering in the moment that leads us to, to success in the long term. However, it is also suffering and pain in the moment that that will that that, that is is sometimes necessary yes for sure and, and so the the best definition i think that i've ever heard about happiness actually came from from one of your books when you said happiness is the experience of climbing toward the peak so it's this this mix of pleasure and meaning at the same time so can you share a little bit about that about how we can combine those two things together to actually live a happy life sure you know so going back to my sports uh uh, experience. When, when I played squash, the um, becoming a professional, winning championships was certainly a very meaningful, um, a, a very meaningful goal, very meaningful objective for me. In fact, you know, I remember when I was uh, 16 years old, so it's you know more than 30 years ago. I remember having that thought, um, saying to myself, "What am I going to do when I no longer play squash?" What is what? What mean will there be in my life when I no longer have squash? Because that was my everything at at that at that time in my life. And of course, later on, uh, it was no longer that. Uh, even though I still love sports, but at that time, it was very meaningful. At the same time, I did not enjoy the process. The most training sessions were painful, and not just painful because I trained hard, but painful psychologically emotionalism because of my inability to to embrace the moment because I was always in the future and never really focusing on the present moment so I wasn't happy during that period um, so that's future benefit that I, I'm working hard for a better future but no present benefit in other words it's meaningful but not pleasurable ideally would have been if I'd also overall enjoyed playing squash the day-to-day and then still still found the goal meaningful uh today i mean because uh while i do work very hard and invest uh much in my work i also really you know i love reading i love writing i love teaching yes i have my ups and downs like we all do but overall i love the experience of it and what i'm doing is very meaningful to me in other words, I strive for you know more and more future uh, uh, goals and and um, and accomplishments. Um, so it's the combination of both present pleasure and future meaning, and that to me is what happiness is all about. And I'm repeating once again: 
not without the difficulties and hardships and and the uh, the pain and even the suffering at times because these are important elements of any life and this is probably the number one misunderstood aspect of a happy life yeah absolutely love that and and what it reminds me of is this this idea that you you brought in, in one of your books of lifelines versus deadlines so can you tell us a little bit about that about how we can actually set goals in our lives that excite us and bring us to life um sure so this idea of uh, of a lifeline versus a deadline it's actually my wife's idea who uh, you know both of us set uh, deadlines and she suddenly came up with this idea and said look i mean you know this is uh, goals are not about uh, dead lines okay. they're about life lines why because goals goals provide us with um, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and they enliven us in many ways. If, and this is a big if, if these goals are what psychologists call self-concordant. Self-concordant goals are goals that are personally meaningful, that are aligned with our values. There are goals that do not primarily come from the outside, they come from the inside. Uh, because, for example, if uh, I want to be a professor at a university um, however if they really think about it that is not their goal that is something that their parents uh, um, gave them or something that they think they should want but it's not really their uh, goal but for someone else uh, being a professor may be a self-concordant goal meaning something that they're really passionate and interested in and when we find whatever that self-concordant goal is for us, that goal that is aligned with our passions, that is aligned with our strength. When we find these goals, set them, and then pursue them, that is what brings us to life. These are our lifelines. So it seems like there's, there's a huge amount of self-awareness that's needed and really understanding ourselves, understanding our skill sets, understanding our talents and our passions to really figure out, hey, is this thing that I'm, I'm about to do? Was like you said, becoming a professor or going into athletics or business or whatever, is it actually the thing that I want and that I'm going to be good at and that I'm going to enjoy? Or is it something that, that like you mentioned before, other people's opinions and other people's thoughts and ideas have just sort of made me to do? And so I'm really curious because you've been obviously incredibly successful in this field. So what does your goal setting routine look like? So how do you set lifelines in your life and make sure that you know, you set these incredible goals, but also achieve them at the same time while enjoying the process of doing that. Yeah, so a few things about this, Max. You know, the, the first thing is that, um, let, let me share a story with you to, to illustrate my point. So um, I was applying for uh, a position, this was a, a few years ago. I was applying for a position with a company that I really, really, really wanted to work for. This was a huge deal uh, for me. And, you know, I wrote a proposal and I rewrote it and, and sent it to, to my friends and colleagues and who commented on it. I sent it wow, over to okay. the company. Uh, they invited, invited me for an interview and the interview went really well and, 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 and I was excited about it. It seems like they were excited about me. Um, and uh, a month went by and I was waiting, anticipating the response. And when, um, when the response came, they said, you know, thank you very much. We think, you know, it was a great proposal, but we decided to go in a different direction. Um, this was devastating. Uh, for me, and I remember um, uh, sitting down in the in our uh, in our dining room at home, and you know my head down, you know, really 
really feeling upset. Uh, you know, and my wife came to me to, to console me and, you know, we we're just talking. And then she asked me a question. And the question was, she said, do your students know how often you fail? And it was a very important question. Um, the, and, and the answer was, was no, they don't. Because what do they see? You know, on stage, they see a, a successful teacher, you know, with the largest class at the university, with best-selling books, um, with, uh, you know, a, a wonderful family. So they, they see, you know, it looks all great. What they do not see are the many failures along the way. And uh, ever since then, and, and as I said, this was a few years ago, ever since then, I've been emphasizing my failures just as I emphasize uh, uh, the successes. I'm proud of the successes. I'm also proud of the failures because uh, I put myself on the line and, and I tried. And one of the sentences, one of the mantras that I repeat over and over and over again to myself, to my children, to my clients and students is learn to fail or fail to learn. Learn to fail or fail to learn. Love that. You know, you, you may know the, the, the lovely uh, Mike Gordon video, you know, where he talks about... Uh, all his failures, you know, how many times he, he failed oh, yeah. uh, when it came to a game-winning shot, you know, how many games uh, he lost, how many times he missed. Um, and, he's, and at the end of and that is why I succeed. In fact, there is research on this. So Dean Simonton from the University of California, Davis, has done a research on, on, on um, very successful people throughout history. Um, these are the most successful scientists and artists and one of the characteristics that he identified in them was that they, much more than their contemporaries, much more than people in their field, they failed. They failed over and over again. Uh, Thomas Edison, for example, said, I failed my way to success. So, so, so this is my first response to your question. You know, how do I, do, do I set uh, goals and then, and then succeed? Uh, yes, I succeed. And yes, I fail over and over again. Um, in terms, specifically in terms of setting goals, you know, you, you mentioned self-awareness, Max, and, and, and that is key, uh, which is why for me, one of the most important tools, maybe the most important tool uh, for goal setting and for many other things is journaling. There is a lot of research on the, on the benefits of journaling, of sitting down and asking yourself questions and then responding to it. Uh, questions such as, you know, what is really important to me? What do I care about? Where do I want to see myself five years from now? What is meaningful to me? And writing about these things is priceless, is very important. So I, I write a lot. I spend a lot of time uh, reflecting. And then I set goals. And I must say, I'm not afraid of changing those goals. So if I see that I'm not connected uh, to the goal, if I see that I'm not uh, connected at all for me, and sometimes the answer is yes, and you know I have to slug through it, experience the the um, the unpleasant journey at times, uh, and sometimes I say, oh no, well maybe this is the wrong goal. I I want to I want to uh, recalculate and uh, and go in a different direction. But self awareness is uh, is a critical element, and much self awareness can come from uh, from journaling. Oh, that's so important for sure, and thank you for sharing that. And actually. That was literally going to be my next question, which I ask every single guest of mine, which is, what's your favorite failure? So we always love to celebrate failures on the show. So do you have, you already mentioned one failure, but do you have a favorite failure? Um, you know, I, you know my, 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 I guess, uh, biggest, at least career-wise failure is that 
from a very young age, I wanted to be a world squash champion. Um, I did not become a world squash champion. However, it was uh, this uh, failure to, to accomplish my goal that has really defined so much of what I do today, because I, I think sports is, uh, is such, a, such a gift. And you know, sports at a, at a high level, um, or any um, experience at a, at a high level is such a gift because it teaches us important lessons. One important lesson is uh, to learn how to fail. Because, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, who's arguably the greatest uh, American athlete of, of, of all time, is, uh, is, is a person who failed many, many times. It's through these failures that he succeeded. And even if he wouldn't have ultimately been the success that, that he was, there was a great deal of benefit to his, uh, uh, to his um, career or to, to the children. And think about it with my children. You know, they, they play basketball, they dance. I really uh, encourage them um, to do sports and I encourage them also to do competitive sports. However, I always emphasize to them that the, 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 the objective here is learning, it's growing, it's developing, it's improving. Uh, winning is less important, far less important. Yeah, absolutely love that. I think that that's so important, especially, you know, taking young children those lessons that, you know, both of us had to learn by, by accident almost that like success in athletics is not the end goal because it's not actually going to make you happy, but to enjoy the process and to develop skills and, and really learn how to fail. Like you said, right. That can translate from athletics to business, to school, to whatever else you're going to do in life. So this ability to just fail and keep on going with the same enthusiasm and the same excitement is I think so valuable. So tell before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? Most of my content, Content is on my website, which is talbenshahar.com. And also, I have a, a relatively new initiative, which is an online school, Happiness Studies Academy. And the website is happinessstudies, one word, dot academy. And there I have uh, online courses, um, which I love because it provides me an opportunity to reach uh, an audience uh, globally. So now, final question, what does mental mastery mean to you? Mental mastery to me means mental flexibility. It's the ability to be able to um, embrace the difficulties and hardships, also to embrace those times when we're not mastering um, our emotional and cognitive life. It's the ability to life um, has to, um, uh, to uh, all that life provides us, the good, the bad, the failures, as well as the successes.